What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. In the West, throw me the idol. No time to argue. Throw me the idol. I throw you the whip. Give me the whip. Adios, senor. That's, of course, from 1981's Raiders of the Lost Ark, which turns 40 this year. This week on the show, we revisit our 30th anniversary review from back in 2012. Josh and I were joined by Chicago Tribune critic Michael Phillips, a noted Raiders skeptic. We really, really shouldn't have trusted him with the idol. Also on the show, our top five films of 1981. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. Back in the fall of 2012, listener Tom Morris from Clinton, Tennessee, wrote in to suggest that we do one of our sacred cow reviews of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It had recently celebrated its 30th anniversary and was headed back into theaters for a limited IMAX run. At the time, we'd only started doing sacred cow reviews on the show. In fact, we'd done only two, a 50th anniversary review of To Kill a Mockingbird and a revisit of Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. In the years since, we've given the sacred cow treatment to over 50 films. But more than any other, it's this conversation about Raiders that listeners have remembered. Not for anything Josh and I have to say about a movie we love, but for what our guest, critic Michael Phillips, had to say about a movie he inexplicably doesn't really like. I can't remember if we knew when we invited him on that Michael was a Raiders hater, but by the time we figured it out, it was too late. So if you've ever wondered how someone could resist one of the greatest and most beloved films of all time, this is the show for you. From 2012, here's that Sacred Cow review of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Enjoy. For nearly 3,000 years, man has searched for the Lost Ark of the Covenant. The Bible speaks of the Ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. Not something to be taken lightly. No one knows its secrets. Jones, do you realize what the Ark is? It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. Upon its 30th anniversary screening last November in L.A., you, Michael Phillips, wrote this about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay. We hold the movies we love very closely, like a royal flush in poker, and to many people, an attack on an adored, endlessly rewatched picture goes beyond fighting words into something like heresy. Take a movie some people would legally marry if they could, so intense is their devotion. I speak of Raiders of the Lost Ark. The angriest, most voluminous emails I ever got on a single review came like thunder and angry bolts of face-melting lightning from God himself after I wrote the following sentence in a review of the fourth and latest Indiana Jones picture, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Indiana Jones, let's be honest, never was a memorable movie character. Michael, please, please tell me, for my sake, for the sake of all of our listeners, that at some point in the past 10 months, you bumped your head or... <laughs> You saw Indy's crumpled fedora on your toast, maybe. Right. Something to force you to repent 
and see the air of your wings. Right, well, let me just try to get to the microphone by, by jumping over these enormous puddles of pathetic nostalgia for this movie. That, <laughs> that I, it's, I, I love that people love it like they do, because there's movies I love like that, and they tend to be movies like that, like the first Star Wars, for example, or the one I really, really have it for, uh, Jaws from 75, two years before the Star Wars, the first Star Wars, and then, uh, what would that be, six years before Raiders. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jaws, I think, really does hold up brilliantly as uh, as probably the greatest, least pretentious scare movie by uh, a master director ever. I mean, I mean, it's it certainly in the generation that would sort of mark the end of Hitchcock. Okay, uh, Raiders. Uh, I you know I, I I I'm touched that people love it, uh, and I I love that they just sort of endlessly review their own. You know, their own 18, 14, 21-year-old selves. I know there's a lot of 90-year-olds who love it. Um, I think it's it's extremely well-crafted, and I never cared about it. Never cared about <laughs> it. Never cared about <laughs> it. Didn't work on you at all. Never cared about it. I, it to me, what do I... To me, it's... It's it's what other people thought about the Star Wars chain in terms of okay, well, how does this affect? And again, we'll talk about the movie, you know, in relation to this. But how does this affect? How does the success of this kind of film, in this film in particular, affect Hollywood? Right? When Jaws came out and when Star Wars came out two years later, seventy five and seventy seven, the the rap against them and and the success of those two films was all about how. It heralded in this 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 unashamed, completely aggressive, you know, like a saturation release blockbuster summer picture mentality. Um, problem being that the so many of the films we got that were kind of marketed, engineered, and released that way weren't didn't have any of the audience appeal, or maybe a quarter of the audience appeal, or actual quality of something like Jaws or the first Star Wars. Mm-hmm. But. I guess I just find Raiders to be. Um, if, if you love a if if you love a director's work, if you, if and if I think of the top five, six, even ten films uh, hit, uh, Spielberg's made, Raiders doesn't crack it. And and I, to me, it feels like it's a sort of engineered movie, not a directed movie. And it's just it's all screw tightening and payoffs. And it's it's why. And again, the the theme park comparison is so hackneyed at this point, I have to come up with something else. <laughs> we all do, but that's what it is. You're just sort of in a chair for two hours and stuff's jumping out at you, and every fight scene seems to go on two and a half minutes too long, and the only time I laughed out loud is when he shot the guy with a sword. Just to maximize the outrage here real quick, Josh, you did, before we sat down, actually come up with a list of 10 Spielberg movies exactly that yeah. you think are better than this. Yeah, that I like more. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, name, uh, Duels, Sugarland Express, Jaws, Close Encounters. I love Close Encounters, and to me that's probably in the top three for him. E.T., Jurassic Park, another very mechanical, uh, you know, absolutely almost soulless blockbuster, Jurassic Park. I think it happens to work very well because the effects are so damn good. And I, I don't, I don't, I don't have a corollary with closing with uh, with Raiders. I just don't. I, I don't know. I don't know why the spirit of the thing feels heavy and grinding to me. That's what it is. It doesn't feel like a great time to me. Well, let's start with the Jurassic Park comparison. I think that's a good one because I think that's where the main distinction is, and it goes to the other quote of yours that Adam read. It's the character of Indiana Jones. That's the difference for me between something like Jurassic Park and Raiders. I found Jurassic Park to be manipulative. In a good way, in the sense that the filmmaker is using craft to get you to do exactly what he wants you to do. But it's soulless, you're right, because there's there's no character in that so, film. But Indiana Jones, mm. 
that's why I'd like to explore a little bit further by what you mean by not being memorable. Because for me, he's the character that makes this thing work. Without him, without the approach Ford took to it, which was not mocking the material, but not entirely on board either. He allowed you to get in on the film, have fun with it, and not entirely be giving yourself over to it, maybe in the way that Spielberg wants you to be given over to it. And I guess those two films, putting them in comparison, highlights to me why Raiders is so much greater. Well, I'm with you on Ford. I think Ford's really engaging in it, and he, I think he completely put it over. Um, and and I think Karen Allen's really good, too. I, I just don't find... <laughs> I don't find any real wit or or God knows there's a lot of energy in it, but it feels completely kind of frantic and mechanical to me. It doesn't have it doesn't have the kind of ebb and flow of something like Jaws, which I, which I just think is like symphonically terrific, you know. And Raiders is just you know one speed, you know, and you're done. I, I although although I will say this, seeing it again, I will say this, seeing it again, I did appreciate the first half hour, 40 minutes more than I remember. And when was this? Was this on its 30th anniversary last year? Yeah, last year. Last year. Um, And I liked liked that it gave you, you know, the the obvious big opening uh, with the boulder. And then, but but I do like the way they kind of back up and give you the expositional background. Okay, here he is, Indiana Jones, you know, Dr. Jones, the academic, Mm -hmm. dealing with Denholm Elliott, who can certainly deliver exposition in my movie anytime. Yeah, he's fantastic. And I guess I just, there's something about the whole kind of uh, holy sanctimonious slaughter of the premise that I never really got comfortable with, I guess. that. And the other thing that I've, I've always wondered about, that I actually got a great email from Bob Gale, uh, the co-writer on Used Cars, and um, saying, you know, I, I'm with you on, on Indiana Jones. Actually, uh, if you look at Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you see how little that character has to do with the, with the resolution of the so-called plot, it doesn't matter. Now, again, in a hell of a lot of movies, Hitchcock's included, you know, the, you know what, the, what the spies are after, you know, it's the MacGuffin, right? Doesn't mm-hmm. matter. It's just uh, yeah, something semi-plausible, whatever. I, but it's the spirit of the thing that I, I guess I question and I, that I just personally don't engage with. And God knows, Adam, Josh, millions do, and you two are in the same cult, and I'm, I've had it. I've had it <laughs> with you guys. I'll admit... I'm overrating Raiders because of that nostalgia factor. But for me, it's really shades of great. I can set aside the fact that, hey, I was seven when I first saw this. I had a tree house with a swing that I pretended I was swinging from. Seven? That's why, that's why, your, whole, that's why your whole spirit is so violent. I mean, you should not have seen that at age seven. <laughs> but see, and I'll admit that that influenced me, okay? I even had one of those surveying things he uses in the desert. I don't know if I got it from a grandpa or from a garage sale, something like that. It was, it was the same thing you could look through. So I was immersed in this movie. But looking back on it now, it's so ingeniously crafted. It is. And I'm going to use the roller coaster theme park comparison, which, yes, it is overused. But in this case, I'm going to use it positively because I think of those rides, the best ones, and maybe the theme park more that have uh, sets involved and so forth as being calibrated Mm -hmm. to such a degree where every move matters. And watching this film again on the IMAX screen, which was a great print, I was relieved to find out. See, that's funny. My print, I didn't feel that way. And I think we saw the exact same one at the same theater. I thought it was really clear. When especially they were in wide shots, you could tell that blowing it up to fit the IMAX screen didn't work. It wasn't very crisp at all. 
Well, at any rate, I still could notice that, especially in that opening 45 minutes, you're right. That's that's the high point for the film. Every shot is in its perfect place. You may find that manipulating or too mechanical. much kind of no, mechanical. As I, as I said but, the second time through, that that's it was it was like, yes, okay, this is this is the kind of thing you wouldn't find in a in a in a similar movie in twenty twelve. You wouldn't find a movie that took That's it, where that Raiders took its time. grows in stature when you realize not only do those eighties copycats have nothing on it, but when you look where we're at generally for action films today, someone like Michael Bay, who's a Spielberg heir in many ways, cannot even film a comprehensible action scene. And then we have something like this. Honestly, it seems to move almost in slow motion compared to what exactly. we get. That's what I thought today. too watching it. And looking back on it, you can see how it's not that rush of senseless action you're getting, but instead you're getting something. This was really an action film of close-ups I found so many times where it was the close-up that mattered. In the beginning, there's that shot of the poison darts mm. in the tree, and you get Indiana Jones, again, such a great introduction. You don't see his face for so long, but you see his figure checking the poison darts, and then the people following him who are working for him come rushing up after he leaves. That entire sequence is one close-up, and all of that suspense and action is taking place within there. And there's other from the snake slithering through Marion's shoe. I mean, just the ingenious use of close-ups alone is astonishing when you compare them to contemporary films. There's no, there's no question that that it's got more to teach audiences and filmmakers than anything Michael Bay's made, especially the Transformers films or the films that he's sort of worked with Spielberg on. And it, it, to me, that's one of the most disheartening things about having to sit through another Transformers sequel always, just to see Spielberg's executive producer yeah. try to come up, you think, Jesus, you know, <laughs> you know it's, it really is a shame. But now why though, why guys, do I have such a, such a, an abiding af- affection and admiration for Jaws, Close Encounters, and this one, uh, eh, you know, yeah, didn't didn't mind it. When I, I can saw understand it. that. I would probably rate both of those films above Raiders. I mean, for me, okay, I would not, but I would need to see both Jaws you and Close not, Encounters again. No, I probably wouldn't mm. actually. But yes, of course, I'm probably watching it through some rose-colored nostalgia glasses. I can't do anything about that. But trying my best to detach myself and watch it through my eyes now and not a 10-year-old kid or however old I was when I finally caught up with it. I don't think I saw it in the theater. It was probably later on TV. I really love this movie just as much, Michael, as I did when I was a kid. And I'm with Josh. I actually felt how slow it was, how much it seemed to really naturally build tension from scene to scene. And I think the point about the close-ups is an accurate one. And I think, actually, I brought my son with me. I brought my 10-year-old son, Holden. Of course, I was hoping that he was going to have that kind of visceral reaction to it that I had when I was 10 years old and he was going to go home and want to play Indiana Jones just like we did when we were kids, Josh. And it didn't happen. He liked the movie. Mm. He thought it was good. It didn't grab him nearly as much as other movies we've watched, even other 80s movies like Ghostbusters, which he adores (laughs) and likes a lot more than Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think maybe it had something to do with how slowly it built that Hmm. tension. Maybe to the modern young viewer, the movie does move along. It trods along a little too slowly. Well, and the, and the thing it really has in common, uh, they so when Raiders came out in 81, two of the Star Wars pictures, uh, including the really good one, The Empire Strikes Back, had, had already come out. And I think Raiders has this in common with those two, even though those two Star Wars are very different. They were unapologetically taking 
what a certain generation or two of movie audiences remembered from their youth. Their you know Saturday matinee serials, mm-hmm. uh, Flash Gordon, um, you know anything, Bomb of the Jungle Boy, you know, any any of these things, and and basically took out all the dull parts. So we may think, you know, you may have an experience from this perspective that, oh, yes, it, it's, quote, slow or it takes its time or, you know, some of the exposition is more leisurely. That than for me is a positive, though. Yeah, Let's yeah, be no, clear. totally, absolutely. Yeah. And from this, but but at the time, in the late 70s and, and when Raiders came out in 81, it was all, it just seemed like completely manic, Speedy Gonzalez behind the camera kind of, you know, mm. that, that was the rhythm that it seemed to be selling. And that, it was that disposable, and I hate to use the word, but it, the first Star Wars and Raiders to me have the same vibe. Now, people, God knows that people adore those films, but it had a disposable, I want to see it again, appeal. That was the whole thing. You could, you were meant to kind of consume it easily and quickly and see it again. And that's what people did. They did it in Or is that it sent people out on such a high that it's almost like a drug where they want to, I mean, they form this attachment to it and the experience itself. If you love it, yeah. If you, if love, you love it, it. if well, you love it, there you go. Yeah. You, yeah. Know, um, you know, I was 20. I wonder if I was 15. You know, you, you can't do about, you can't do anything, as you say, Adam, about the age you see something and you fall for something. But mm-hmm. if I was, you know, 13, 15 instead of 20, would I've would I've flipped for it? I, I don't think so. Yeah. But but there was something in the way it's made that I just, uh, even though it was exciting in almost every objective sense of, it, of that word, um, you know, as Paul and Kale said, kinesthetically the movie gets to you, but it doesn't really rattle around in your imagination if you don't like it. Well, I do want to touch on the craft of this film, and I think Josh, you hinted at some of the stuff, or you talked about some of the specific things Spielberg does. Something I certainly didn't notice when I was nine or ten years old, but I did now, is how well I think this story is constructed in a way that I wish more modern filmmakers, I wish more people making films today would take a cue from Spielberg and his screenwriters here, Lawrence Kasdan, with the screenplay credit, in terms of not just how the film is edited, the great close-ups, but also the way it matches action and it flows from scene to scene. There's, there's almost like it takes a cue from that opening shot of the Paramount logo and then how that fades into or dissolves into the mountain that we see. The whole film is kind of like that. It's seamless from sequence to sequence, and I love that. I also love the fact that just purely from a narrative standpoint, the stakes, as we love to talk about here on Film Spotting, are so high. The arc actually existing, that is something pretty fascinating to dive into if it really does, if they discover it. But then if they discover it, it proves the existence of God. And then you've got the other layer of what if the Nazis get their hands on this. So just in terms of that, that narrative level, there were really high stakes in terms of Indiana Jones finding this piece. It isn't just about him finding the golden idol because it'd be great for a collection. It's something he's always wanted to get his hands on. No, this is true life and death consequences and dealing with some larger existential questions. So I like that about the film. But what I really noticed this time in terms of the screenplay is the way nothing is wasted in the film. The way if something is introduced it factors into the story later, and not even in a big plot way. It's just a matter of adding context and adding some color and adding to our understanding of the film based on things they planted the seed for earlier. And so I made a few notes about this. His hatred of snakes, they introduced that in that opening sequence when he gets in the plane and he says to the, the pilot, Jacques, I think, why is there a snake here? And he says, I hate snakes. Well, that's there, of course, so that we get that heightened tension later when he sees the asp and the audience makes the we make that connection before maybe he even does. I love how I mean, Lubitsch always talked about that, right? Give the audience two plus two. Let them figure out that it's four, that kind of thing. This movie does that all the time. The snakes, the dates. Do you remember the scene where he almost gets poisoned? I completely forgot about this scene. 
earlier in the film, he's walking around the market area with Marion and he's eating dates and he says dates they're for eating and she doesn't want one that's all there just to set up the fact that we know he might eat one and he might die just adds a little bit of attention to that the fact that we get that great sequence where when we meet Marion she's drinking we're seeing how good of a drinker she is she drinks that big woman or man whatever it is under the table and wins that money of course that factors in later in the seduction scene with Belloc when she's trying to get away from him we know the audience knows that she can drink really well that she can handle her liquor more than likely much better than Belloc can and this is all just a ruse to escape there are many more of those I could I could go those on are all with character that development all, they're all character too. development they add to our understanding of those characters but they also just play into the overall story and our understanding of it in really subtle ways sometimes even if it's just heightening the tension of a scene that's still great storytelling all right, all right, all right, all right. enough of your enough of your love okay uh, <laughs> let me let me throw this at you uh, the very fine critic Dave Kerr from the New mm-hmm. York Times, who used to write for the Chicago Reader and the Chicago Tribune, later he wrote this in 1981. One would think that a collaboration between Steven Spielberg and George Lucas would produce something better than this giggly pastiche of a Republic serial. But then again, maybe not. Their, their gadget freak aesthetics and propensity for instant gratification seem to reinforce each other. Harrison Ford is a swashbuckling archaeologist. Karen Allen, da 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 they did this, and Spielberg, who directed knows a lot about action cutting, but nothing about narrative rhythm. This 1981 hmm. film... Couldn't disagree I mean, <laughs> more. <laughs> uh, this 1981 film travels fast and straight down a linear plot, but the ceaseless rush quickly becomes monotonous. Just two more sentences. The body count is somewhere on the far side of Dawn of the Dead, but with no sign of Romero's underlying moral seriousness. When our hero is twice given a choice between saving the booty and the woman he loves and chooses the booty both times... I have to wonder what makes him different than the Nazis he's fighting. Now, I don't agree with <laughs> I don't agree with that point, though it's beautifully phrased. But God, Spielberg tells us, with dumbfounding literalness, is on his side. Okay, a couple of things there. First of all, as far as the narrative goes, that's describing something that's different and new, not that's necessarily bad. I mean, if it's used in a way where it doesn't make for a coherent storyline or a coherent narrative, I could see. But this is just different than what other films had been doing at the time in terms of that sort of propulsion, which I might add is matched by the Indiana Jones character. He's the same sort of propulsive, does not give up, continues hero. He's almost like a villain in a horror story and that he'll he'll never stop. So those two things match up. I will concede a little bit and looking back at it, as Adam said, we're trying to be as honest as possible here. Looking back at it some 30 years since I first fell in love with it, the moral seriousness aspect of it, I, I think is something, I, I, but I yeah. think it's something that's worth pausing and considering, especially in light of the Spielberg films that followed. Because the one scene that I remember thinking was just great as a kid was the shooting of the swordsman. That's the it best. Is so it, funny. It's still the best thing in the movie. But it doesn't deliver the way it did when I was a kid this time around. That's also seen now the moment – this is the moment when I see is, okay, what are we doing here? I think that's the movie, what Dave Kerr is getting at. That's the moment where we do start to think, okay, what are all these bodies? This is the Bay connection to me. To Bay, (laughs) bodies are props. And you see something like – I forget what – I think it's Bad Boys 2 where corpses are literally props. I believe they're thrown out of a car – in order to make the person chasing them crash. Yeah. That's how he treats bodies, living or dead. In Raiders here, you see that same sensibility. You do. That, that's a little bothersome to me. If I came to this movie as an adult, 
I think that would give me pause. Whereas coming to it okay, as a kid uh, uh, is yeah, where yeah, I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. Still, it's me, cartoonish in that but way. To, but to me, that's, in a very violent cartoonish yeah, way. But to me, that's still the, the my favorite 10 seconds in Raiders. Is, yeah. Because it's, it's, the comic timing is just, is just but right. But see, I guess what I was saying is I remember that moment the way that moment plays out in my memory. And I thought it played out very distinctly. It's something very vivid for me. Played out much slower with many more deliberate beats in my head than when I saw it this time. Because you're recognizing really the remember. callousness, I think, Maybe you are. as an adult. Maybe you are, but I really remember when I saw it as a kid, that great pause of watching the guy do these fancy moves with his sword, Harrison Ford kind of saying, huh, I've got a gun, and using it. It's much quicker than that. Uh, but uh, the, And I think, I think actually the moral seriousness argument is kind of nonsense because it's just the movie's existing in a different realm than, than taking it that seriously. It reflects but, an but, immaturity, I guess, uh, is what you would yeah, say. But I would say this. I guess one of the reasons I love Jaws is... Every death, every shark attack really counts, and not necessarily because we know the people on screen. <laughs> you know, we don't know the woman in the first 10 minutes. Um, we don't know the kid who gets it in that incredible beach scene where Roy Scheider's scanning. I mean, that's just a whole nother level of grade-A escapism. And, and I just, I find this is great. These are grade-A commercial film artists working on a grade-B project, and yeah, that's what you get. Well, I definitely feel like, to get back to the question, though, of how memorable a character Indiana Jones is, that's for me. I think nice I'm hat. with you, Josh. Good hat. Great hat, great bullwhip, but I think I'm with you in saying that that's one of the reasons this film stands out for me. If I'm going back to my all-time favorite action movie heroes, Indiana Jones is still going to be at the top of the list, Michael. And I think that, obviously, as you touched on, Josh, part of it is just the buildup. There's that great classical Hollywood introduction to him where we just see the hat, the back of the head, him moving his hands. But then we finally get that grin. When we get that close-up, that determined look on his face and kind of that awkward smile, that's what occurred to me this time watching it, why I really appreciate Harrison Ford in this role and Indiana Jones, the character. It seems as if Spielberg allows him to actually have some fun it really isn't just about being a badass killer or being this action movie stud. When he gets in the truck, when he's driving the truck and he's finally kicked all the Nazis out of it and he's just got the truck to himself in the open road with the car in front of him, they take a moment to actually show Harrison Ford and get a smile on his face. Right. Like a 16-year-old kid would smile when you finally get to rev the car. He has that moment of, of just glee that that character has when he's out doing what he's supposed to be doing. And I think that's something that draws me to that character in ways that other action movies I like that. I like heroes that mo- don't. I like that moment. I just wish that fight didn't feel like it took three, four minutes longer than it should have. To, 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 I don't know. I don't yeah, know. but I still, I still really appreciate that they can stage something on that scale and have it play out. I think, I think that when they play it out and they're able to make it work and you think to yourself, I can't believe this is going to happen next. They're going to do this next. And I never felt like it was loading upon me like, no. oh, isn't this over yet? I would more giggle like Ford does. And I can't believe that there's going to be another I element will, to this. I will I, say this, though. I'm more comfortable with CGI. Okay. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Speaking of that, though, I was going to touch on the effects. Watching it now 31 years later you can tell that the effects really are dated. It was sort of like watching Ghostbusters again, which I did watch with my son for the first time a couple months ago. And there are some scenes there that are just really pretty bad that back in the 80s, they look fine. And there's a lot of moments in this film, basically, when the arc starts working its magic. And that's the other point that I think I'll agree with Dave Caron, Michael. The one thing about this film, the one criticism that I can actually find about this film, because otherwise I had the same reaction I did when I was a kid, is to the ending of the film. I do feel like 
it's not nearly as memorable as I had hoped. I actually realized as I was watching the film that I had no recollection how the film ended. I kept confusing the better ending from The Last Crusade. And I kept thinking, well, wait, where's the moment going to come in where they make the choice and they drink from the cup? I thought that was going to happen because I actually didn't remember it. And then when you get to the end of the film, when you actually get to the finale, Harrison Ford, he doesn't really factor in no. to the ending of this at he all. Gives up. He He's pretty much tied just up. gives up. He's no. tied up. He comes up with a solution, I guess, to avoiding being killed, yeah, exactly. which is not to look into the arc and what's going on. But it really is this kind of lazy, I would say, supernatural, George well, Lucas type well, moment. And, 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 arguably, and arguably offensive. It I doesn't think. culminate arguably the whole offensive. film in a really satisfactory way yeah. based on all the all the great care the movie takes in building up this story. It's the it least successful attempt by Spielberg to go for that wonder scene that yeah. works so well in something like E.T. or Close Encounters. Yeah, or, this or, is trying or, for that same sensibility yeah. and it doesn't quite match those. Even worse though would have been the climax to Crystal Skull. I mean that really looked yeah. like somebody who hadn't, hadn't even seen a movie made. I mean <laughs> and, and that right. really was that was a shocking come down. Now I will say this the first 30-40 minutes yes for what it is, it's just about right. Uh, I think Harrison Ford is a real selling point on this thing. But you know, can you imagine the actor they wanted, right, in the part, and they couldn't get him out of the contract for Magnum PI? Right. Oh yeah. Tom Selleck. You know, <laughs> maybe. I mean, I don't. I, I have no doubt the movie would have been just almost as big a hit. I don't think so at all. You don't. Think I think so? Ford is the key to the continuing appeal and attachment people have. Of to course, this film. we'll never know. I really do. Well, there's know. only one Han Solo, and there's only one Indiana Jones. They happen to be played by the same guy. But that's the magic of Harrison Ford. I'm sorry. <laughs> I refuse to believe that this movie would have worked with anybody else. I can't do it. Uh, uh, let's see. Justin Bieber. <laughs> well, Bieber we, can do anything. We might see that, actually. <laughs> now, I would like the record to reflect that I like puppies. <laughs> that, that's that will not gonna be in help your you. favor. <laughs> that's not going to help you at all. From 2012, that was our 30th anniversary Sacred Cow review of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Michael Phillips there playing the role of Raiders Contrarian. The movie celebrates its 40th anniversary this year and has just been released as part of a four-film Indiana Jones collection for the first time in 4K Ultra HD. It is also available to rent on most platforms. For more Sacred Cow reviews, visit filmspotting.net slash lists. Up next, some movies that Michael likes more than Raiders. The top five films of 1981. Stay with us. knew someday you'd come walking back through my door. I never doubted that. Something made it inevitable. So what are you doing here in Nepal? I need one of the pieces your father collected. I learned to hate you in the last 10 years. Welcome back to Film Spotting with Josh Larson. I'm Adam Kempinar. Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune is with us as well. Well, Michael is going to be so relieved that after this, we will not mention Raiders of the Lost Ark anymore but we had to play another scene there from it because josh we're calling this our raiders of the lost ark memorial list just ours of the top five films of 1981 because i'm sorry michael despite your aversion to that masterpiece yes i called it a masterpiece 
it is our number one pick. We would both say it's the number best film one. of 1981. Number so one. we're excluding it. We're putting it aside. We came up with five other choices, and we thought this would be a good top five to do, looking back on that year as we had our sacred cow discussion of Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, Michael, as you look back on 81, as you reflected, was this any kind of a good year for cinema, and what's your number five? I mean, it wasn't really like an, a, a milestone year, was no. it? I mean, it didn't have, you know, like as I say earlier, if, if it was 1975, you'd have um, an amazing variety of, of really ambitious experimental studio stuff and then a movie like Jaws which some people say ruined Hollywood and I say, you know, I say maybe but it's a great movie <laughs> I don't care but uh, for me number five okay you want to hear it mm-hmm. you want to hear it I can't wait Stripes starring Bill Murray I love it yes this was a tough omission for yeah. me I love that was film it? And it's not much of a comedy, honestly. It's not a great screen comedy. Uh, it's to me, I'd put it in the same category as as Anchorman with Will Ferrell. I mean, that's not a particularly well written or innovative comedy. It doesn't even really hold up toward the end. I don't care. It, the best thirty, forty, fifty minutes of it just still makes me laugh. Yeah, I think it is such a pleasure to see a guy like Murray lighten the load of of. You know, of this old, you know, standby genre, the military comedy, uh, and just somehow the 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 vibe that he and Harold Ramis get going, just as these two schlubs who yep. <laughs> decided to join the army, and where they run into John Candy and everybody else, and Warren Oates is the you know is uh-huh. the tough as nails commander and all, uh, Sergeant Holka, uh, yeah, yeah, big toe, yeah, and El- Elmer Bernstein's score, it's like he's scoring the Great Escape again. That's and, true. And no one told him that it's just a Bill Murray comedy, and you know, I I I really I really think this film. Is the is the kind of star vehicle that we don't get often enough today? Meaning, uh, just just something that's basically designed to prop up a, a uniquely skilled comic talent and and do the job, and it still does the job. We're all very different people. We're not Watusi. We're not Spartans. We're Americans with a capital A, huh? You know what that means, do you? That means that our forefathers were kicked out of every decent country in the world. We are the wretched refuse. We're the underdog. We're mutts. Here's proof. His nose is cold. But there's no animal that's more faithful, that's more loyal, more lovable than the mutt. Who saw Old Yeller? Yeah, that was a really tough one for me to leave off. At various points, it was in my top five because I still quote from that film. The fact is, on a daily basis, I can find reasons to work stripes lines into my everyday conversation. And as I was forming this list, I was thinking back to our dance scenes from last week. Couldn't the big scene where they do their big presentation Mm. on graduation day. It's essentially a big choreographed scene. I actually think that could have been a contender for a great dance scene. I think so, too. Yeah, I had this as an honorable mention. Definitely vintage Murray. For number five, though, I went with An American Werewolf in London. Nice. Writer-director John Landis, I I think of him as an exploitation director, but he lands just barely on the right side of the Hollywood tracks. But even so, his name doesn't come up all that often. His films come up. Very often, his name, not so much. But when you think about films like Animal House, The Blues Brothers, even Adam's recent top five honorees, Spies Like Us, these persist as cult or popular classics. Wait a minute, Spies Like Us? It was top five greatest films of all time. You missed that one, Spies Like Us, Michael? (laughs) That one slid right under there. (laughs) Well, after 1980's Blues Brothers, Landis delivered An American Werewolf in London. And now, some 30 years later, and this is the thing I think I love most about it, is you still can't categorize it. 
David Naughton and Griffin Dunn play American backpackers who encounter a werewolf on the moors of England. And after this attack, Dunn is left as this walking corpse and Naughton comes under the werewolf curse. This is played for comedy mostly, I would say, but there's also it's full of gore. And there's real horror, too. Most scenes kind of bottle up all three of these things in some bizarrely idiosyncratic concoction. And the one example I'll give is the climax. You have to understand, if you haven't seen it, when Naughton kills someone, they're left in this limbo state. So they walk around like corpses. They can't really die until he's killed. So the climax takes place, first of all, in this Piccadilly Circus porno theater where Dunn's corpse has gathered other victims of Naughton's. So they're surrounding him in this theater trying to convince him to kill himself. And all of this is played for comedy as they come up with different suggestions. Meanwhile, Naughton starts to change into a werewolf while this is going on. And mind you, the porn movie is playing in the background. <laughs> so it's at this point watching the movie you realize whether this is good or bad, this is something you've never seen before and you're likely never going to see it again. You look awful. Thank you. I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean it. I don't know what I'm saying. I don't even know if it was me that killed those people last night. I don't remember doing it. What about the zoo? Well... Even if I'm not the wolf man, I'm crazy enough to do something like that. And look at me, here I sit in a porno theater in Piccadilly Circus talking to a corpse. I'm actually glad to see you, Jack. That's actually next week's top five, top five porno scenes. Is it? Oh, yeah. great. So I think scenes in a porno theater <laughs> will be a very fruitful list. So far, you guys have nailed two of my honorable mentions. I had seven that I really wrestled with. Four of them that easily could have been in this number five slot, but I'm going to stick with the horror genre. And as I look through my list, I realized that 1981 was a bad year in a lot of ways for genre movies. There were a lot of really bad genre films, but there were a lot of really good genre films as well. And I think this one was one of the most influential horror films ever. It's Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's my number five pick. Of course, five students go off to the hills of Tennessee to spend their spring break in an isolated cabin, and they find the Book of the Dead and an audio tape with chants that bring these demons to life. And it's Sam Raimi's debut. This has come up a lot on the show over the past seven years that no one's going to ever confuse me for a real horror buff, but that isn't because I have any problems with the genre. I just was always a huge scaredy cat when I was a kid. Movies like this really terrified me. Even when I finally saw this film for the first time, I think I was a sophomore in high school and it scared me. I'm pretty sure I had to stop the VHS tape when those demons first appeared just because it gave me goosebumps. But when I see it now, I still get those chills a little bit, but I also see the great humor in yeah. it. It's a very funny movie, but as I said, also very gory, also very scary at times. And, of course, I think what makes it so influential is Raimi's inventiveness with the camera, how creative it is, working clearly on a very limited budget. But to be able to combine that, to make you laugh and give you chills at the same time, is something few filmmakers can pull off. So, for me... The Evil Dead's my number five. Yeah, there was something about that comic horror mixture that was mm-hmm. going on in 81. Yeah, and sure. I think every film that's followed since then, and there have been plenty of them, owes a debt to yeah. this movie. So really, ultimately, I think that's why it ended up in my top five was I was giving it a nod for the fact that it was so Influence, influential. Yeah. yeah, so Michael, your number four, film of 1981. My number four is Brian De Palma's Blowout. Is that on your guys' list? Honorable mention. Uh, no, nope, not on okay. mine. No, I like the film a lot. It's, 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 um... I prefer Blow Up. <laughs> I'm sorry. I prefer the Antonioni, Michael. Uh, I prefer Up. Pixar's Up. But that's not, that wasn't this year. I think with Blowout, 
De Palma finally got a little further away from the Hitchcock sources and tropes that he loved so much, and he d- he just had the story and the and the actors to do it. Uh, it. It's it's probably Travolta's best screen performance, maybe. And, and it's a gorgeous, sleek, you know, in many ways very familiar in terms of the story. But it's it just as a as a film experience, it really it really is magic and uh, and and a very, and a genuinely sad film too. Yeah, yeah. It's a good film geek film, of course, because it deals with the technical aspects of putting a film together and I'm sure you're right about John Travolta's performance as long as you overlook a little gem called Michael <laughs> I don't know how you could do that yeah. Michael Phillips but or okay. Battlefield Earth Battlefield or Earth, Battlefield Earth yes, to stick yes. with the master theme here Josh your number four my number four, I think, has a reputation as being a camp fest. It's Excalibur. Wow. And to appreciate I this I mean, earnest... I loved it when I was seven. I did. Well, I what think what happens... Who's taking you? Seven years old, are you going to Excalibur? What My you... parents just let me watch whatever what I of, wanted. What kind of slackers brought when you it, up? When it showed up on cable, I just could watch it. So okay. you never grew out of Raiders, but you grew out of Excalibur. I don't know that I did. <laughs> Probably not. I just haven't watched even a part of it since then. here's the problem with it. If you look at it, and again, this is the earnest dramatization of the Arthurian legend. So if you look at it for the lead performances, you're going to have problems. You've got Nicholas Clay's Pretty Boy Lancelot, who's the epitome of an 80s aerobic instructor. It's really (laughs) bad stuff. But in the background, here's what you'll find, or who you'll find, rather. You've got Gabriel Byrne, who's just ruthless as Arthur's father. You've got Liam Neeson, who's raging up a storm well before taken as one of Arthur's knights. And even Helen Mirren, who's conniving as Merlin's protege, Morgana. What is this place? Here you enter the coils of the dragon. Here my power was born. Here all things are possible and all things meet their opposites. The future. And the past. Desire. And regret. Knowledge. And oblivion. Yeah, now if she had been in Raiders... You might have made the difference for you. Then you got a movie. (laughs) I really think director John Borman brings a a reverence and an awe for the source material that you can feel in the finished film. So things like the dragon's breath that cover the castle and even the green glow they give to the sword Excalibur. It never felt cheesy to me, even though it easily could. And I know it does for a lot of people. Movie legend does have it that Borman wanted to make the Lord of the Rings movies well before Peter Jackson. I'm more than happy with Jackson's versions. But... This makes me think he might have been able to pull oh, I, it off. I, it's a lot of. I haven't seen it for years. I no. gotta see it again. And Nicole, I'd like to. Nicole Williamson's fantastic in it. He's just uh, he is going to town in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a lot. There of, is a lot of that. A lot yes. of actors are good stuff. Well, my number four, I think, follows your blowout pick nicely because this is a movie that Brian De Palma, considering his various fetishes, cinematic and otherwise, probably could have made this film, but I don't know if he would have made it better than Lawrence Kasdan did. His debut film, following Sam Raimi's debut film, my number four is Body Heat, the neo-noir. Basically, it's one of my top ten films of all time. Yeah, Double Indemnity, this would be on there. Dressed up in new clothes, and that could either be a disaster or someone like me could find the film very effective, and I do find it very effective. And it's fun, actually, to think back on Kathleen Turner and William Hurt at that time, they were like the new blood in Hollywood, which is so funny to think about that now, but they were fresh faces then. Hurt was coming off Eyewitness and Altered States, but otherwise wasn't much of a presence. Kathleen Turner had been doing stage stuff, and this was her breakthrough film. She's clearly got a Lauren Bacall thing going on in terms of her voice, her hair, her legs, her mannerisms in this film. You can stand there with me if you want, but you'll have to agree not to talk about the heat. I'm a married woman. Meaning what? 
Meaning I'm not looking for company. And you should have said I'm a happily married woman. That's my business. What? How happy I am. And how happy is that? You're not too smart, are you? <laughs> I like that in a man. What else do you like? Lazy, ugly, horny? I got them all. You don't look lazy. <laughs> Tell me, does chat like this work with most women? Even though it's not a strict remake of Double Indemnity, it does what a good remake or whatever you want to call it should, which is it adapts the the original material and it takes it and it justifies itself in this modern setting. It takes the glossy California dream of Double Indemnity, puts it in this small town, swampy Florida. Everybody just desperate to get out. The heat, obviously, from the name becomes a catalyst for a lot of the activity of the film. And it isn't about what I argued with Indemnity, where it's about the lofty ambition of this main character trying to beat the house, trying to pull off the perfect crime. Here it really is about greed and about lust. And in 1981, Lawrence Kasdan could shoot that. He could do what Billy Wilder couldn't do on camera in terms of showing that really fierce sexuality. I mean, there's a moment in this film, my favorite moment is where William Hurt, actually, he's so worked up, he's followed her back to her house. She's closed the door and locked it on him that he can't contain himself anymore. He has to have her. He throws a chair through the window and goes in and they go at it right there on the floor in the in the hallway. Of this house. That's the kind of pent up sexual frustration that this movie really does build off of. And I think it does it really effectively. And you, and you have this really good turn from Mickey Rourke as Mickey the ar- Rourke. As twitchy arsonist. And, and maybe I mean, even he's... better, Ted Danson. Ted, Ted Danson is, is right. phenomenal as the assistant county prosecutor who's a friend of his but ends up investigating him as he's clearly involved in the murder of her husband. There's something about the modern films that try to update the noirs and deal with the sexuality in a way that they're still timid. They know they can be more brazen, so they're just brazen enough, right. but they don't go all the way with it. And that middle ground doesn't seem to work. Hmm. This movie's not in the middle ground. No, it really isn't in the middle ground. And I think what it does with the language is really good, too. Lawrence Kasdan writing the script for himself as a first-time filmmaker. It's one of these films that clearly pays a little tribute to those classic film noirs. And it has those elements of a hard-boiled style of dialogue. It's at least a little bit elevated and kind of sultry and kind of fun, some of the one-liners. But at the same time, it's not a matter of aping it. It doesn't feel out of place. It really is how people would talk, you would think, in this setting. They're not just kind of mimicking the the crackle of the 40s dialogue. So I love Body Heat, my number four. Michael, your number three number film three, number of 1981. It, uh, speak, and speaking of talk, it was I'd never, yeah. I had never seen, at age 20 in college, I had never seen a film like My Dinner with Andre, the Louis Malle film that showcases this, uh, let's say, a fictionalized version of a very real friendship between uh, Andre Gregory, the theater director, and the sometime actor and uh, Wally Shawn, Wallace Shawn, the playwright and actor, uh, who I once had the great pleasure of interviewing, and he was a fantastic, hmm. fantastic interview. And I just found that film to be kind of the most stimulating surprise of of my young college life, you know, in terms of the movies. I just it did nothing seemed to be appealing going in. It's what it's just a conversation over dinner, and you know, it's just about it's about theater and art and life and friendship and. The rest of it, and and really by the end, when you have Wally Shawn just sort of in the cab, going home uh, in the streets of New York, and looking out and just thinking about his, I have a Proustian moment, you know, about oh, this is where I did this, this is where I did that. Uh, it's a very, it's it's a very consciously artificial, hoked up little contraption of a movie, but I I just adored it at the time, and um, I I owe it to myself to see it again. Have you seen it lately? I have not. 
It's Probably. been at least 10 years, yeah, which is actually why for me, I had to put it in an honorable mention. I just don't remember it well enough, but I remember loving it when yeah, I saw it. Yeah, and I will say, I have, to, I have to point out, too, that that was a film that in the early days of, I don't know if, I don't remember if it was called Sneak Previews or at the movies then, but uh, Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel really made that thing happen. Hmm. Because yeah, they, I they, remember they, them championing they that. Got, they, got, they got behind it early and... Uh, you know, uh, the the distributor really didn't have much of a prayer or a hope for that thing. And those were the days where you, you know, you had, you know, one show exerting a lot of influence. And, you know, the word of mouth was legitimately good, though. A lot of film was not for everybody. A lot of people, you know, were basically driven crazy by it because it, all it is is kind of circuitous conversation. But it's also very funny. And yeah. I don't know. I just, I find it a, a genuinely searching picture. I, I, I love it. I love it. When I met him at Findhorn, he said to me, where are you from? And I said, New York. He said, ah, New York, yes, that's a very interesting place. Do you know a lot of New Yorkers who keep talking about the fact that they want to leave but never do? And I said, oh, yes. And he said, why do you think they don't leave? I gave him different banal theories. He said, oh, I don't think it's that way at all. He said, I think that New York is the new model for the new concentration camp, where the camp has been built by the inmates themselves, and the inmates are the guards, and they have this pride in this thing they've built. They've built their own prison, and so they exist in a state of schizophrenia, where they are both guards and prisoners, and as a result, they no longer have, having been lobotomized, the capacity to leave the prison they've made or to even see it as a prison. I'm going to second that pick, actually. I had my dinner with Andre at number three, too. Oh, and cool, I, was, cool. I was surprised as well that I liked it as much because, goodness knows, I'll be the first to admit, I'm normally drawn to more actively cinematic pictures. That's what appeals to me when they employ all the camera and the lighting sound techniques at the medium's disposal, which this film does in, in subtle ways, but mainly it's two guys talking. And I do remember um, Ebert championing it quite a bit. That may have been why I did eventually seek it out. Thinking about it now, though, what it reminded me of are things like Curb Your Enthusiasm or even Jerry Seinfeld's recent web shorts, the comedians getting coffee in cars. It's really just the joy of smart camaraderie that those properties also capture that are reflected in My Dinner with Andre. Yeah. It's just kind of a joy to watch. That's a yeah. good point. That's a good point, yeah. It, it makes I, me think of actually a book I remember coming across in college and really embracing, and I don't remember what it was called. I think it was maybe just called Conversations or A Conversation Between Archibald McLeish, the writer, and Mark Van Doren of Van Doren, Van Doren mm. from Quiz Show, the father to that character, and just these two learned men talking about literature and life and all these big questions. It's just a book of their conversations, and I found it fascinating, and it's not unlike watching those two men on screen in my dinner with Andre. Yeah, and it was also, that was a very good year for Louis Malle, because he also made another film we might bring up in a little bit. That's but, a tease. Uh, and and his, when you think of Malle's uh, final film, the semi-theatricalized film version of uh, Vanya. Uncle Vanya, the Chekhov play uh, called Vanya on 42nd Street, there's that too is simply a screen full of wonderful actors talking and mm -hmm. it happens to be fantastic dialogue too but um it does it's a reminder that you don't need to quote open up the right conversations on screen sometimes you just have to bore in a little bit my number three film from that year is a great chicago movie and my third pick in a row from a first time filmmaker the filmmaker is michael mann his debut film was thief starring James Caan. It's basically, if you're a fan of Heat, 
a future Michael Mann film. This is the movie that laid the groundwork for all of that. He's essentially the Robert De Niro character. He is a professional. He is very good at what he does, like most of the characters from Michael Mann's films. And he gets in a little bit over his head. He's trying to pull off one last big job or a few big jobs to finally be able to go away with his woman, played in this movie by Tuesday Weld. I think the key scene and this ties in nicely with my dinner with Andre from this film, is actually this 10-minute conversation scene. It takes place in a diner. He's trying to convince Tuesday Weld to be with him, to stay with him. And she's saying, I'm not going to be with someone who's in this line of work, who I don't know is going to come home at night. And he kind of explains who he is and why he is the way he is, relating a story from his time in prison. What'd you go up for? I stole $40. $40? Yeah. Started with a two-year bit, parole in six months. And right away, I got into this problem with these two guys. They tried to turn me out. So I picked up uh, nine more on, on a manslaughter beef, some other things. I was 20 when I went in, 31 when I come out. Uh, you, don't, uh, you don't count months and years. Uh, you don't do time that way. What do you mean? Why? Why? You gotta forget time. Uh, you gotta not give a f if you live or die. Uh, you gotta get to where nothing means nothing. James Caan is just a treasure on screen, and he's fantastic in that scene in particular, but throughout this entire film. Like Manhunter, which is also a Michael Mann film, I really appreciate. This movie ends with a rush of violence that I don't find all that effective. I think it's as if Mann didn't quite know how to end the film, and so he just said, let's throw a lot of gunfire and a lot of blood at this, and we'll let a character walk away from it. But I do love Khan, as I said, and great location stuff in the city of Chicago, actually using some real Chicago cops who were trying to get in on his action. So that works really well in Thief. One thing that was really going on when you when you look at some of these movies uh, in, in as parallels, all in 81, you have Thief, Body Heat, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Blowout. These are, these are films that aren't interested for a, for a moment in any kind of you know realism or what's going on necessarily in the world today they mm -hmm. are movies about movies yeah. And, yeah. and 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 it's all about the kind of um, the kind of dark glamour and the kind of uh, sheen and craft you can bring to the retelling of some of these old stories. Mm -hmm. And and like Irving Berlin said, there's only a handful of melodies and you just keep rewriting them. You know? <laughs> and uh, But you, there are infinite varieties within that. And sometimes you get a movie that really clicks for you. You And whether or not you know all the source material references that went into the writing of it. I'm going to attribute that entire trend to putting an actor in the White House. Ronald <laughs> I like Reagan. It. I like it. Okay. I like it. I'm sure I'm way off, but that brings us to our number two film of 1981, Michael. My number two is Louis Malle's Atlantic City, and it was a, it was a great year for Louis. Malle, I guess so. When you think of that, and my dinner with Andre, this, the film's success I think really is owed to John Guare's screenplay, and he's a wonderful playwright uh, who I, I forget if he'd written much for the screen at that point, but. This is a script that doesn't feel fussed over or focus grouped or anything. It's just it's just a wonderful character portrait of this small time hood, Lou, who lives in the title city, and he's played by Burt Lancaster in the kind of performance that I, you know, if you knew Lancaster's entire career, you knew he was capable of it. He hadn't had a chance to show that kind of subtlety and that kind of wit um, in in decades. And Susan Sarandon's very good as this young croupier in training who. 
um, whose life he sort of gets involved with in various ways. And it's not a high energy picture and it's not a tightly calibrated picture. It works much closer to the ground and in a more poetic vein. Um, but I don't want that description to scare people away who don't know the film because it's, it's charm and it's wit really is special and it's, it's lovely. It wouldn't be Michael Phillips appearance on film spotting if he didn't come up with one pick that shamed us for having not seen it. And Atlantic city has been on my shame list for quite a while. So thank you for furthering my, bring the shame. my embarrassment. <laughs> and as, Michael. Bert, as Bert Lancaster says in the film, the Atlantic ocean was something back then. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said it's not a high energy picture. I'll, I'll give you a high energy picture for my number two. It's the road warrior, the <laughs> sequel to Mad Max known in Australia's Mad Max Two. For me, it's the definitive installment in that series. It's the one where it fully blossoms into this insane post-apocalyptic Western with Mel Gibson as the reluctant drifter hero. This did turn Gibson pretty much into an international star, and he's he's certainly riveting here. But the movie mainly persists in my memory for its use of landscape as character. Mm. Uh, you talked about Antonioni on our last show, The Sight and Sound Show, you were with us for. And I think that the use here by director George Miller is similar in the way it's just the dominant force in the picture is the landscape. I just happened to come back from a quick trip to New Mexico and we were able to get out in the desert there. And even the scruffy nothingness out there feels like a tropical jungle compared to what you see in the road warrior. And as for the action, I'd actually put the car chases here up against the truck scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark. That good, huh? Miller, yeah. Miller's really good with, with that kind of action. And that was a good, uh, yeah, that, that made my honorable mention list. And actually, another, along with another film I really like that is not going to get any love from anybody here, I can tell, is, is the second Superman film, Superman 2, that Richard Lester took over from Richard Donner. And oh, that, it's going to come up. It's, gonna, <laughs> it's just not going to make my top five, but oh, really? we're going to talk about it. All right, well, I got to talk about it first. I'll see I mentioned it first. Okay. I just mentioned it. Go for it. I know, I'm done. You spoiled it. I just wanted to jump it. That's all. <laughs> well, my number two is an epic film, not a debut film, finally on my list, but a sophomore effort from Warren Beatty. And it is the 12-time Oscar nominee from that year. It won three of them. The movie Reds came up recently in my top five movies about writers. It is the story of John Reed, the revolutionary communist and journalist, and his relationship with Louise Bryant, played by Diane Keaton in the film. It's a movie that I resisted for a long time because I saw it as one of those prestige Hollywood movies. All the Oscar nominations just couldn't be that good is how I looked at it. And you have to consider, too, age-wise, for me, the first exposure I ever had to Warren Beatty was Bullworth. That was the first Warren Beatty film I saw. I didn't know him wow. from McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Well, it came out in 98. So you're what, 18? So, yeah, I'm about 18. <laughs> okay. And it wasn't until I was about 18 that I started going back and watching those films like McCabe and Shampoo and Bonnie and Clyde, of course. So I see Bullworth, which he directed, and it's not a good film. I'm sorry. And it's not a well-directed film. And that's so it. You were done with Warren Beatty. Basically, that was enough for me to just totally write off Red's Oscar nominations be damned. And then, of course, five or six years ago, whenever it was, I finally sat down and watched it and was genuinely surprised to see not just how good it was, but to see Beatty taking risks on screen, making a film about a communist in 1981 but also in his portrayal of Reed, making him a really difficult character to love. And style-wise, I love the documentary-infused scenes. I love the fact that he takes these people who actually knew Louise Bryant and John Reed and puts them on screen. I don't even think he gives them a name or the tells historical you witnesses, what the relationship right. is. But yeah, he, he just gives you them on screen as historical witnesses. And then that just adds context and sets up 
the story that we see play out in dramatic form. I thought that was really effective. So for me, Reds is one of those rare Oscar movies that actually lives up to its hype and to its prestige. See, I have to revisit it because in my memory, it is from what I saw that prestigious bloated almost mm. Oscar picture but it's been a long time since Jack Nicholson is Eugene O'Neill well, see, every to, he, scene yeah to me he, he I has think he, that, that may be the least great. mannered performance and, and maybe the most effective performance in the film was Nicholson's uh, portrayal of Eugene O'Neill could be yeah. you hear it sometimes in Massacre Theater we use that theme one of his lines to Diane Keaton comes up in Massacre Theater here on the show regularly Michael that brings us to our number one film of 1981 well, this will mark me as a psychosexual f- sicko, but uh, um, it's it's pennies from heaven. Herbert Ross's uh, big screen. It is. Uh, what, what do you? What do you? What? Uh, no, no, Josh, no, Josh no, is calling on. the cops. I just here. like that. Are you mocking I like that pick? introduction. No, I know. Well, it's <laughs> it. This is not an easy movie. I mean, this is. I don't know if you know the Dennis Potter BBC miniseries where Bob Hoskins played this. Uh, thwarted, really, really desperate sheet music salesman in uh, 1930s England. Now that's been transferred to 1930s Chicago with Steve Martin, arguably a little miscast as this desperate, sexually voracious sheet music salesman who uh, falls in love with this spinster, uh, I think virginal spinster uh, school teacher played by Bernadette Peters, who was fantastically good in the in the dramatic scenes. And the whole operation of the picture is is dealing with you know, really harsh, miserable real-life situations that can only be escaped through fantasy musical numbers. So, and and this, is, this has been done before and since, but uh, the best five or six numbers that the director, Herbert Ross, and the choreographers pull off are, are just in terms of the way they're uh, uh, shot and cut and designed and performed. They're really, they seriously take you back to the best of the MGM years, and yet it's in this completely different, nasty, acrid tone. And it, man, this is a movie that makes you eat it. <laughs> and by, and it really does get harsher and harsher and more desolate and more desolate. And I don't know if it all works. I don't know a lot of things, but I do know that I, I come back to that movie a lot. And again, even if Martin isn't quite right for all the dramatic scenes, it's... Uh, I think I actually I think Berna Peters' performance in it is probably the unsung performance of the decade. Wow! Seriously. I mean, she's immensely talented. Yeah, so. but, but it's incredibly subtle and naturalistic, and just great. This man and this woman singer. They... Arthur, what's this got to do with being married? Just a minute, a minute. At the hotel where they were playing, see, they gave the elevator operator a twenty-dollar bill to stop the elevator between floors. Turn his back. Do people do things like that? Like what, Eileen? Make love in an elevator. We mean like kissing, do you? Oh, that all. Oh, Eileen, Eileen, that's a good girl. You knew what I was talking about. Would you ever do that? What they did? Between which floors, Arthur? That's one I need to revisit. Josh, your number one film of the year 1981. My number one is Das Boot, Wolfgang Peterson's epic, brilliant U-boat saga, almost entirely set aboard a German submarine during World War II. Several versions of this were released. It was initially a 150-minute theatrical version. Then there were 
two, I believe, different television series made of the material. And then in 1997, we got a three-hour, 29-minute director's cut. I've seen both theatrical versions, and the longer one really is truly essential to the experience because endurance, impatience, claustrophobia, all of these are crucial components to the film, components that really are only heightened the longer the movie goes. Now, I didn't add boredom there, even though you would seem to think that would be part of it too. And the movie does acknowledge that and nods to it, but really we're so engrossed by these sailors' predicament that we never become bored. Especially I'm thinking of the one sequence where they dive below the safe limit and the mechanic panics to the point where he has to be restrained. So from that point on, we're really on edge. And this also becomes a deeply humanizing work because American audiences, of course, we're becoming invested in what is the historical enemy. It's similar to what Eastwood was doing or trying to do with letters from Iwo Jima. So you add all this up, and I think what we have here is the best submarine movie of all time. Hmm. Are there a lot to choose from? There are a lot of submarine movies. I don't want to undercut you your, think about it. Top your dramatic five submarine movies. It's coming up. Eventually, we'll get there here on Film Spotting. Well, even worse, though, Josh, than my fear of demons from Evil Dead is my fear of confined spaces. I'm so claustrophobic, I've never been able to watch oh, I don't know boot. if you could take it, then. No, I, I know I don't want to watch it. Wow. So, so. This, this is why we're doing open-air uh, uh, tapings on Navy Pier instead of actually in the BEZ studio. Exactly. Right? Okay. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I can't be in a small room. Come on. My number one, I think ties things up nicely here because it's another movie that, as you were saying, Michael, from 1981, that is very much almost about movies, not really about the real world or any real world concerns. It's very much a genre film, multiple genres, and it's a movie, going back to our opening discussion of Raiders of the Lost Ark, that I'm sure I can't view through any glasses but nostalgia-tinted ones, and it's John Carpenter's Escape from New York. <laughs> My favorite film of 81 Number one. is Escape from is New York. Is it set in 1997? It's set in 1997. I still remember, I still remember the poster tagline. New York yep. is a maximum security maximum prison. Maximum security prison, that's right. It's, <laughs> the whole island is just a prison. You go in, nobody comes out, basically, and the president, of course, is on his way to a summit with the Soviet Union and China, crashes there, a terrorist attack. He crashes, and he's taken hostage. And they can only send in one man. Wait a minute. I know who you are. Yeah, but I heard you were dead. I am. Wow, Snake Plissken, all right. Snake Plissken. All right, Snake Plissken. Who is up there with Indiana Jones among my favorite action movie heroes. And it really does combine so many genres effectively. It's a sci-fi dystopia. It's a race against the clock movie. It's a heist movie, a rescue thriller in that way. And... It also has that healthy, rebellious streak that you get in every John Carpenter movie. There's that real distrust of those in authority, a disconnect between the government and the masses. And it has been, I'll admit, it's been a long time since I've watched it from start to finish. I see scenes from it when it comes on again and again. It was my number four nostalgia movie of all time, the movie that I really associate with my, my childhood. But the junior high Adam is winning out <laughs> on this list, guys. I'm sorry. It's so my number one. So this is why 1981 really was the year of Adrian Barbeau for you. It between was. Her, between her work in Escape from New York and, and the Swamp, cannibal, and no, and the Swamp cannibal, People or no, whatever no, she no, made. No, that was later. The Cannonball <laughs> Run. The Cannonball <laughs> Run. The Cannonball Run. It all comes back to I'm just saying, this has really turned, I feel like I joined a fraternity coming in tonight. I don't know. <laughs> That's what I was hoping for. I would really like to take you to task more for this, but honestly, I haven't seen it since I was a kid. I just have memories of feeling like it was schlocky then. Really? So, yeah, I do. Well, I didn't. always. As a kid, I didn't even get 
to get past that. Josh, Josh, don't you get the premise? New York is a maximum security (laughs) prison. In 1997. Oh, oh, I get it. That's awesome. (laughs) You know, there's always a schlocky element to Carpenter. I think you have to accept that on some level. Oh, I like the film. I like the film. Good. Well, then that justifies it, Michael. Hey, hey, what about no love for the Oscar winner this year? Chariots of Fire, not for me. I like it, but... Yeah, Not my top 10. another one I saw very long ago and have hazy memories of. And again, has that prestigious aura yeah. to it that I kind of resist. Which is probably a little unfair, but it's a fine film, but not a not a particularly great film, I would say. Yeah. What about other honorable mentions? A lot of them have come up. Were there any others that were really tough for you to leave off, Michael? I mean, I, I, I think Albert Brooks's Modern Romance is really interesting. I don't like it like I like Lost in America, but it's fantastic to see him start to develop a style in a feature length, yeah. you know, um, borderline stalker character. Definitely. <laughs> you know? And that co-starred Catherine Harold, who was, was fantastic and never got the career she deserved. Unfortunately not. Um, I, we, I, I think Road Warrior was a close call for me. Uh, I really, really like Superman 2. Of, of, of that sort of first wave of that generation of superhero films, I, that second Superman is, re, is is the one, to me, that gets the mixture of straight and slightly paradox, you know, in that Richard Lester took over. Yeah. And by the third one, when Lester had really taken over, it was, <laughs> he basically trashed the series. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and Diva is a film, the French film Diva, the thriller, that made a big impact on me when I saw it at age, whatever, 20 or 21. And even 10, 15 years later, it just seemed kind of like it was that year's thing, and it was, you know, like so, and every now and then you get a film from another in another language that it's basically just kind of a bubble-headed thriller done with real style. Like the Run Lola Run is a film I like a lot mm-hmm. from Germany, and Diva was that for me at age twenty twenty one. And then ten years later, I was like, what? Eh, eh, you know. And now I don't think it's much of anything. Have you seen Diva? No. Lately? Have not. Oh, Haven't it, seen it at all. Well, it made a big impact at the University of Minnesota campus <laughs> when I was 20, let me tell you. What other movies made a big impact on you, Josh, from 1981? I did have Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead on my short list as well. And continuing in definitely the horror vein, but also you know a little bit more morbid horror and comedy would be David Cronenberg's Scanners. That was my big regret. Ooh, yeah. I wanted to note that that was the one film on this list I really wanted to badly see before forming my top five, and I couldn't fit it in. Yeah, definitely an honorable mention for me. And then Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits. I have very fond memories of that one. More fond memories of that than Escape from New York. Hmm. But I would have to revisit it again in order to put it on the list. Well, as I noted, there were seven movies I had as honorable mentions. Five of them you guys had on your list. My Dinner with Andre, Blowout, Stripes, An American Werewolf in London, and The Road Warrior. The two movies you didn't put on your list that I did consider, I like Prince of the City, the Sidney Lumet film. I I like it. Treat Williams. is a little bit of a Serpico thing going on where he rats on the corruption and the police department and we see how badly that goes for him overall a really good film but you're right michael the movie that i really wrestled with the most and in various incarnations of this list was in my top three is superman 2 because no movies had a bigger impact on me as a kid than superman 1 and superman 2 Mm. i watched those movies incessantly it's just been so long and as i reflected back on superman 2 i couldn't remember just how campy that movie was whether or not it really holds up or or not. I remember but, it as oh, no, being it the better. Does it? Yeah. Oh, it's much the better, better than the one. one. But yeah. isn't that a, I thought that was an 80 movie. I didn't know when, in a lot of the searches hmm. I did, it didn't come up as 81, I saw it but as it might have been. Is, okay. All right. Well, I, I would love to say I just left it off because it wasn't 81. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, and I could just undo everything I just said. It wouldn't have been on my list anyway, uh, either way, though I do remember it being the better of that series. Really? Okay, so yeah. Sam said the same thing to me, our producer Definitely. Sam Van Halder. Oh, he far. thought, isn't number two the better of the series? I thought, well, that's just what people always say, like Empire Strikes Back. The second film always seems to be the better one. I didn't know if that was really true or not. Well, how, with Superman. How do you guys, just speaking of which, we'll bring this around to goddamn Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, well, what do you guys think of the second Raiders film, Temple of Doom? It's so bizarre. It has more personality, <laughs> I would say, but it's bizarre personality that you don't know what to make of it. I mean, talk about effects on the industry. That's the one that ushered in the PG-13 yeah, rating, that and correct? Gremlin, that and Gremlins. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and Gremlins. Which is so, a better film, I think. Gremlins is a better film. Oh, definitely. Wow. Yeah. Then Temple of the Doom. Oh, then yeah. Temple of Doom. Gremlins is by oh, yeah. far the okay, better uh, film. Okay, sorry. Yeah, I thought yeah, you yeah. were saying better than Raiders of the Lost Ark. No, well, it is. Feel that no, way too, it is. Yes, I do, sir. Yes, I do, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Temple of Doom, I have to be honest, I've never watched the film all the way through. Why? Even as a kid. Why? Because something about it as a kid... Even with how much I love Raiders of the Lost Ark, there was something about it when I remember seeing it on TV. It never grabbed me. Did you it sense never it was too me. frightening? Did you, did you pick that up? Or? No. Just something, something about the, the mythology of Raiders of the Lost Ark, introducing us to who he is as an archaeologist and the mystery of the Ark. That's what grabbed me as a kid with that film. And all I remember from Temple of Doom is Bugs. Well, there, there I remember were a lot bugs. of bugs. Well, the, hard, the, the, the weird thing, and I guess I sort of admire this, the weird thing about Spielberg is he's very, very quickly after completing a film, he'll do mea culpas for, for what he didn't think he got right. I mean, he really thought the violence was misjudged in Temple of Doom, but, you know, the whole heart plucking out of the chest thing. And, of course, it caused all this ratings controversy, which he didn't necessarily invite. But, uh, it, you know, it's a colossal misjudgment, I think, to have that movie have all this really, you know, elaborate, sort of hugely overscaled slapstick in the first half hour, and then you're yanking people's hearts out. And it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's, it's a fairly, sad, it's a sadistically paced sequence, too, that whole bit with the thuggies in, right. inside. I mean, it's like a 10, 15-minute sequence that's really designed to make your kids go to therapy 25 years later. and uh, I'm glad I missed it then. <laughs> You're so well adjusted because you did. Exactly, though I do remember that scene. I think I've probably seen the entire film in pieces, huh. but never sat down from start to finish. It just never... It just never connected with me. Those are our top five films of 1981. Send us your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at wbez.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.